Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, that's me. Hi. Yeah, welcome in Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, joined by Carrie Haskell for episode number 142. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, this time around, a couple of very interesting conversations with you on the program. In the second half, actress Sheila Kelly talks with us uh, not about her acting career, but the more than two decades she spent uh, helping women deal with trauma, body image issues, and more through teaching them the art of pole dancing. And that story is all told in a brand new Netflix documentary called Strip Down, Rise Up. Sheila Kelly talks with us about that in the second half of this week's podcast. We get it underway by welcoming back a gentleman who's been with us a couple of times before. He is an acclaimed journalist and author of books like Paul McCartney, A Life, Bruce, all about Bruce Springsteen, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon, and his newest, Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records. Uh, It's a phenomenal story about a company started by Jack Warner, Back in the 1950s, because he he didn't like the idea that if they did musicals, other companies would get to release the soundtrack and get the money. But he didn't want any rock and roll. Uh, Later, they would merge with Frank Sinatra's reprised records, and Frank didn't want any rock and roll. But somehow they managed to work around that. And then in the 60s, bolstered by success with people like the Everly Brothers, but comedy albums from Bob Newhart and Alan Sherman, They took on a new approach, and the approach was unique in the world of music. Don't chase hit records. Find quality music from quality performers who can build long careers. And, you know, we might not initially sell as many records, but if we're patient, it'll pay off. And and boy, uh, did it ever along the way through artists like Peter, Paul, and Mary, Randy Newman, The Grateful Dead, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Alice Cooper, Van Halen, the Doobie Brothers, Neil Young, and uh, you know, into the 80s and 90s with Fleetwood Mac, Rod Stewart, George Benson, Prince, Madonna, Paul Simon, Tom Petty, U2, R.E.M., the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and more. It's a remarkable story about a very unique company, Warner Brothers, all told by author of Sonic Boom, Peter Ames Carlin. Peter, thanks for being with us again. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Man, I love this book so, so much. And uh, you had me right from the get-go. As the book opens with the story of uh, Van Dyke's Park. Uh, Van Dyke Park's friend of our show has been on a number of times. But he's such a great example of, of what Warner Brothers was really all about. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, um, Van Dyke was this sort of avant-garde composer, arranger, sort of artist in the mid-60s in L.A. And he he had worked with Brian Wilson on that, uh, you know, his notoriously unreleased masterpiece, Smile, uh, that he made for the Beach Boys in 1966, which eventually came out in a slightly different form, you know, when they finally finished it about 40 years later. So uh, Van Dyke was this kind of underground celebrity hero, and, and uh, but, you know, he didn't really have any kind of mainstream elements to him. But when Mo Austin you know, heard about him and met him. He was just so taken with the guy's brilliance that he signed him to a contract and, 
and you know to, to be both a house arranger and producer and an artist and and Van Dyke made this incredibly avant-garde record called Song Cycle, which they released in late 1967. That got incredibly great reviews, but sold nearly no copies. But Mo still loved it and loved Van Dyke and kept him on the label for 30 years after that, just because he liked to hear Van Dyke's records. And he thought Van Dyke was so brilliant, he deserved to be making records for a mainstream record company. Now, you got yourself in a proper frame of mind to re-listen to Song Cycle. Uh, do you understand it yet? No, do I understand it? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think that just uh, having the ability to, you know, I think really uh, uh, in my in my slightly psychedelic experience of that record uh, from a couple of years ago um, that you're describing, um, I think just being able to sit down and really focus on it and really sort of blot everything else out of my mind was was kind of important. It's it, you know it, it's such a deep record. It's so there's so much going on in it. You know you really really need to uh, you know as they say turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. <laughs> so <laughs> and from that point forward, you know I've enjoyed listening to it uh, sober as a judge. Well, let's go back to the beginning and the genesis of, of Warner Brothers Records, and it was it was as simple, I guess, as, as Jack Warner not wanting to see others benefit from the soundtracks of Warner Brothers musicals. Yeah, you know, one of the things that really set him off was the fact that Tab Hunter, who was a Warner Brothers actor, uh, had had a number one single for Dot Records, um, even though, you know, I mean, it was one of these things where Tab was clearly not a singer, even by his own estimation, but they made a pop record and he was such a popular, you know, movie star at the time that it just exploded. And when Jack Warner noticed how much money dot records was making off of his artists, uh, he was just like, ah, you know, enough of this. And, you know, between that and the soundtracks for the musicals that they were producing, you know, in film, he, uh, he had them found this, this record company in 1958, um, you know, to go along with Warner Brothers Pictures. It was obviously Warner Brothers Records and uh, gave them just like $2 million in the seed money, which wasn't really that much even then, and, uh, and told them to start a world-class record company. But, of course, they didn't have quite enough money to sign artists, <laughs> at least not, you know, not like big-time artists. So, you know, they brought in a bunch of different actors and people they already had under contract. Uh, you know, Tab Hunter made a spectacularly unsuccessful single or two after his first hit. Uh, and then even Jack Webb was, you know, from Dragnet, <laughs> was reciting love songs, you know, to the to the delight of nobody. Um, and they had a bunch of artists who, uh, you know, the first president of the label came from a musical family. And, and you know, his in-laws and friends were all musicians. And so even though most of them were already signed to other record companies, he did deals with them to work for him under the table, recording under pseudonyms. <laughs> and uh, and then the company's first series of releases, you know, many of them were by artists pretending to be other artists. And uh, and 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 they collected these and, and put them out under the most bizarre titles. Um, my favorite in their first release was was one they credited to a guitar player named Ira Ironstrings, <laughs> who, of course, didn't exist, but... They decided to name music for people with three dollars and ninety eight cents plus tax, if any. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of sort of what they were forced to do for the first couple of years of the company's existence. 
And, and eventually they reached the point where they were struggling and, and given an ultimatum that they had about six months to either make it or break it. And, and they struck gold uh, with the Everly Brothers, whose very first song for the label, Kathy's Clown, went all the way to number one. Yeah, you know, actually the first thing that kept them in business was the sort of free kit they had with the soundtrack to 77 Sunset Strip, which was a Warner Brothers <laughs> right. TV show. You know, and and uh, and that just broke through, and there was some cool music associated with that. And then they had uh, one of the the actor who played the character Ed Kooky Burns, or excuse me, Kooky. Um, <laughs> the actor was named Ed Burns. He put out a single called Kooky Lend Me Your Comb," with Connie Francis singing on it too. And that somehow broke through with the soundtrack and sold enough copies to kind of keep the lights on for a few months. At which point. That's when they signed the Everly Brothers, and you know, and they immediately had a, a number one million-selling single with Kathy's, Kathy's Clown. But but the real important breakthroughs in sixty sixty one were when Bob Newhart, the comedian, put right. out his first record. That was somebody they just discovered thanks to a friend of a friend who worked at the uh, you know at the Warner Brothers um, warehouse in Chicago who knew this guy. And his first record, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart, sold multiple millions. And another comedian who did parody songs named Alan Sherman, who we all remember from Hello Mudda, Hello Bada, <laughs> he came out of nowhere and sold millions of millions of copies of his records out of the box. And, and that kept them going even in these early days when Jack Warner kept them from, from recording rock and roll artists. We're talking with Peter Ames Carlin here on Downtown. His new book is called Sonic Boom. Uh, in the early 60s, uh, the company would merge with Frank Sinatra's record label, Reprise. And as you point out, uh, that the name of that record company had multiple meanings. Yeah. Well, I think generally most people pronounce it reprise, like a reprise in, you know, in music when you play something over again. Um, but, but, but Frank started the label because he was so aggravated with his own record company. He was recording for Capitol at the time, but for some reason there was some clause in his contract that said he could also release records for another label. So he founded his own boutique label, uh, which most people pronounced reprise, but he called reprise. <laughs> he saw it as a reprisal to these, these guys at Capitol Records he was so angry at. Um, and then he hired this guy, uh, Mo Austin, to be the, to sort of be the leader of the company, to sort of be the day-to-day chief executive. Um, and Mo had come up through Verve Records, which was a jazz label, um, a very sort of artist-friendly jazz label. Um, and so he, you know, and Frank really liked this idea. The idea was just that they were going to record the best artists, you know, that, that Frank approved of, which were jazz artists and pop artists of his generation. Um, though Frank, like uh, like Jack Warner, was a rock and ro- serious rock and roll hater, and so he forbade them from releasing any rock and roll <laughs> records, much to his financial chagrin as, as, as the years went by. And uh, finally, the, uh, the labels merged in 1963 when uh, Frank was losing so much money with reprise, um, but uh, Jack Warner was so desperate to get him to make movies for Warner Brothers that he agreed to, uh, uh, you know, that if Frank signed this movie deal that he was going to buy Reprise and, and merge it with his own record company, uh, you know, and take and take all that debt off of his shoulders. 
And and it was, I, I believe, a young Mo Austin who had to go to Sinatra's house and, and essentially tell him that, hey, I know they're your friends, but some of these guys aren't selling records and we need to move in a different direction. Yeah, and Frank was businessman enough where he uh, just sort of like rattled the ice in his Jack Daniels or, or whatever and just sort of said, okay, do it. And uh, so so Mo and uh, uh, managed to cut a bunch of... Uh, uh, you know, and his A&R guys managed to cut a bunch of these sort of Deadwood artists and bring in some newer, more vital ones. But they still had to do this little dance sort of around rock and roll. But the one thing that uh, that allowed them to make a breakthrough was in uh, 1964, um, they had made a distribution deal with a British company, record company called Pi. Mm. And the deal was that Pi could distribute, you know, the the reprise um, records in England and Europe, and reprise could distribute the Pi records in the U.S. Um, and one of the acts that Pi had on their uh, on their roster was the Kinks, and uh, you know, and a few other rock and roll bands. They didn't, you know, they they were just happy, you know, perfectly happy releasing rock records. And so, in the early summer of 1964, Mo Austin noticed that you know this band, the Kinks jumping up the bottom parts of the uh, of the record charts in uh, in England and so he um, he arranged to release that single of you really got me in the US and uh, it wasn't you know, he didn't have to clear signing them because they had they were they sort of came in through the back door through this deal with pie and uh, lo and behold uh, you really got me was as big a hit in America as it was in the in the UK rising into the top 10, I think maybe even into the top five. And, uh, you know, the flood of cash that came through that kind of softened a lot of those sort of upper corporate executives' concerns about rock and roll. What I love, one of the many things I love about this book is that uh, the heroes in, in this rock and roll story are not the performers as much as the people behind it, the Mo Austins, uh, the Joe Smiths of the world, the, uh, the Lenny Waronkers. And, and the unique approach that they had and how unique was it to say to your your A and R people, stop chasing hit singles, just find quality music? Yeah, that was a big turning point that they made in in 1967. You know, even by mid 1966 or so, they were getting a lot more daring. You know, Mo, the the two labels at that point were sort of known collectively as Warner Reprise. Um, but uh, you know, Mo was kind of essentially the chief executive of the Reprise side, and his his compatriot over on the Warner Brothers side was a fellow named Joe Smith, um, who had started out as a disc jockey, actually, then then went into promotions and uh, proved to be so great at uh, uh, at hearing, uh, you know, potential hit singles and stuff that they, you know, moved him over into the main executive line. And he became the sort of day to day president of Warner Brothers. And by the late summer of 66, he was, you know, he had signed the Grateful Dead who were then just like a pretty hot, you know, ballroom dance band in San Francisco on the new psychedelic scene. And, and at exactly the same time he was doing that, Mo Austin was getting hip to Jimi Hendrix, who was, you know, beginning to make a big splash in England over in London. And so by the start of 67, they had, you know, these two very prominent, you know, sort of psychedelic acts, you know, the dead, and uh, and Hendrix and when the Monterey Pop Festival took place in June of 67 and both 
Hendricks and the Dead played there, and Hendricks was like the huge discovery. Um, and right after that, uh, uh, they released his first album in the U.S., Are You Experienced, which sold like three million copies out of the box. And, um, you know, and right around then, you know, Mo and, and Joe got complete authority over who they were going to sign. And they both agreed that the thing they needed to do right then was to pivot toward, you know, more sophisticated rock and roll music. You know, this idea that people had earlier that the teeny boppers, you know, the sort of the young baby boomers who loved the Beatles and screamed over them and Herman's Hermits and all these others in the early 60s, they were growing up and becoming more mature. And, you know, a lot of the older execs were pretty sure that when they became more sophisticated, they were just going to give up the rock and roll and go back and listen to Sinatra and, and, you know, and the jazz people. But what Mo and Joe understood was that that wasn't going to happen. They were just going to want to listen to more sophisticated rock and roll music, you know. And that was the point at which Mo sort of gathered the A&R people in, you know, the late summer of 67 and said, look, we need to stop trying to make hit records. Let's just make good records and turn those into hits. And part of that philosophy was a new emphasis on on recording albums as opposed mm. to, you know, 45 RPM singles, which had dominated the industry to that point. Um, and doing that, uh, suddenly, you know, you had like Hendrix selling multiple millions of his album. And, you know, and then they began to sign other artists that were like that, like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Captain Beefheart and Randy Newman and, and Van Dyke Parks, who we discussed earlier. Um, and a whole variety of other very kind of avant-garde-ish, very sort of left-of-center types of, of hippie artists. And um, it, it would have seemed like commercial suicide to say, let's not, let's not try to have hit singles. But they you know, were so prescient in reading what was going to happen with you know, the rock and roll culture um, and this you know, culture of young you know, but rapidly growing uh, baby boomers was that, you know, three years later, they were the top-selling uh, uh, label in the United States. One of the other great characters in the book is uh, Stan Cornyn, who came up with such uh, interesting and uh, unique advertising campaigns. But as you point out, not all the artists love what Stan was doing. Yeah, you know, uh, Stan had been a liner note writer and, and did other sort of editorial stuff, you know, writing press releases and stuff. But he was a real clearly a very smart and very creative guy and he um in 1968 i guess the person who was the head of advertising decided to go to law school so they made uh you know uh they decided to make stan the new director of advertising and one of the reasons they thought he was so perfect for the job was because he hated advertising <laughs> and uh had never written an ad and had, had no interest in it but basically the idea they you know that that uh, that he had was was you know there's barely any advertising for rock records as it is and what what there is you know what there was at that point was so badly done so what he what he realized was that as the company was changing its focus in terms of the music and the, you know the artists they were signing the records they were putting out then they they also would want to change their sort of their identity their kind of personality because they needed to pivot from being seen as kind of the home of Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter, Paul and Mary into being, you know, the home of the Grateful Dead and Jimi Hendrix and all these counterculture bands. So he created this, 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 this 
jaw-dropping series of ads, um, you know, that, that he would put into Rolling Stone magazine and, and underground newspapers across the country. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, the one to promote the Randy Newman record, uh, this is a full-page ad. They were all full-page ads that had big headlines on top, big attention-grabbing headlines, a photo, and then like a little mini-essay. And uh, for the Randy Newman record, um, the uh, the headline was uh, uh, um, uh, "Once you get used to it, his voice is really something." You know, because Randy Newman had that. You know, he's got that kind of slurry voice. You know, he sounds. Somebody described him once as, I think, Ray Charles after a shot of Demerol or something. You know. Um, <laughs> about it but it drew a lot of attention to the record you know even though i don't think that one sold very well it took a few years for randy to break through but it also drew attention to the fact that there was this record company that was completely different from all the other record companies and the counterculture people who were their primary target um uh for their audience really began to pay attention and began to admire them you know the uh you know he did an ad for uh for Van Dyke Parks's record that Van Dyke hated, but also got attention. That was essentially writing. It was an ad basically trying to convince people to buy song cycle. And the first one in the series said something like uh, how we lost, you know, $35,509 and 20 cents on the quote album of the year, close <laughs> quote. And then open parentheses, damn it, close parentheses. And, and basically, and this was something he would do repeatedly, it's like this is he would basically implore the readers, the audience, to say, look, you guys aren't buying this record, but we think it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, we know this is a great record and you're going to love it. Just, you know, just just give it a chance, you know. And, and the, the, the ads were so funny and so offbeat. And so, you know, I mean, the second ad for the Randy Newman thing, which, you know, after the first ad didn't sell any more records, then the next ad for the record said, want a free album? Okay. <laughs> and the deal was if you just send in your name and address, they would send you a copy of Randy Newman's record because they were so sure you were going to love it. They also, and, and it just, you know, it just created this whole sort of sense of, of Warner Brothers records being the, you know, basically the commercial face of the hippie counterculture. I remember um, those ads so well from, from my jaded youth, but also I thought another brilliant marketing plan, their, their loss leaders, uh, their samplers, where they would uh, send out uh, compilations with maybe a couple songs from each of their new albums. Yeah, they would take, you know, they, yeah, they called them loss leaders, these, these records. And I think the first one was called the Warner Brothers or the Warner Reprise Record Show. And then the next one was, you know, the Warner, Warner Brothers music show. And, and they would be double album, you know, double record sets um, with about, you know, like 20 plus songs on them, you know, usually one or two from a whole variety of artists who had new records out. Um, and they would, you know, you, they were mail-in deals and they only cost like two bucks. You know, and one of my early music memories from, you know, 1969 when I was about six years old was that my dad got one of those records and we were listening to it, and I was, you know, looking at the cover and all the art and the liner notes and everything. And it was just, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of perspective on the culture in general, but uh, but <laughs> but I could tell from the start that this was a very, very different kind of uh, for-profit business. 
What did the ownership of Steve Ross mean to Warner Brothers? Well, Steve Ross eventually bought the company. You know, I mean, uh, 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 Jack Warner had sold originally when he decided to sell Warner Brothers to um, this other company called Seven Arts, and then they held on to it for two, three years, and then sold it to Steve Ross, who was then just sort of coming into his own, starting, you know, he had started in his father-in-law's business that began with funeral homes and parking lots or something. But but um, Steve began to, you know, was really interested in getting into show business. And so he bought Warner Brothers, you know, knowing that instead of buying, uh, you know, a movie company that was struggling a little bit, that also happened to have record companies, he was buying record companies that just happened to have, you know, happened to be associated with a movie company. And um, and he gave Mo Austin and Joe Smith and the other presidents of the record companies that they had at that point, which included Atlantic Records, he was so in awe of what they could do with, with, with music that he just sat back and said, you guys do what you do and I'm not going to bother you at all. And he gave them an incredible amount of independence, which is why Mo could, you know, could pursue this policy he had of putting the artists and the music before the profit. You know, that was kind of the, one of the, you know, sort of the central philosophy of the company was that, you know, they were going to run it sort of like a for-profit music commune, mm. you know, where they would have a certain number of pop acts and people who were popular who were going to make a lot of money and they were going to use the profits to subsidize artists like the Grateful Dead and Randy Newman and Van Dyke Parks and, you know, and, and these other sort of freaky artists who might or might not break through. And part of what Mo was banking on was this idea that if you gave an artist time to really sort of discover their voice and connect with an audience, you know, while they were making the music that they wanted to make, they were going to make better records. And this audience was going to you know, when they found them, were going to be intensely loyal and continue to buy their records over, you know, not just a matter of weeks or months, but years and decades. And that's exactly what's been going on. I mean, they lost money on the first three or four Grateful Dead records until the dead broke through in 1970. Um, and even now, you know, almost 60 years later, they're still making money off those early, even the early Grateful Dead records. That, that didn't sell at first. You know, once the audience caught up with them, suddenly there was demand. And they make a ton of money every year still from the catalog sales of the artists that Mo and Joe signed in the late 60s and early 70s. You point out in the book, Peter, they had a little early 80s slump, but then bounced back in a big way with, with Prince and Purple Rain, Madonna, uh, on through Paul Simon's Graceland album, and, and into the 90s with, with Petty and R.E.M., uh, you too, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and then, and then things changed. And if there's if there's a villain in your story, would it be Robert Morgado? Yeah, well, he was an executive that Steve Ross hired um, out of the political world. I think he was a, a an advisor to then uh, New York Governor Hugh Carey, um, and he came into Warner's um, working for Steve Ross, kind of being his hatchet man to some degree. Um, because he was good at firing people and slimming things down, you know, and Steve was kind of the good cop character, the good, you know, dad-like figure. But uh, what happened was when Steve Ross began to get ill in the early 90s, he was suffering from cancer, um, you know, Morgado got more and more power in the company, and 
and one of the things that he had always wanted to do was to gain control over the record companies. And while Steve Ross was alive, he wouldn't allow it because he knew that, you know, Mo and, uh, you know, and Ahmed Erdogan over at Atlantic and these other record company presidents that they had knew something about their business that, that he, Steve Ross, and other executives, you know, mainstream corporate executives didn't know. And so there was no point trying to second guess them or order them around because God only knew what, what you were going to miss as a result, you know, because you know, there was a certain X factor with a good sort of music slash creative executive, someone who understands artists and knows that art is a very sort of, you know, uh, a quirky thing that's hard to describe in an intellectual way. Um, but then when Steve Ross got sicker and then passed away in late 1992, this fellow, uh, Robert Morgato got enough power where he did in fact take over the record companies and made it very clear to them, uh, to the presidents that they were not going to be allowed the independence they'd once had. And even though Warner had made, you know, the Warner record company under Mo Austin, had made just unfathomable amounts of money over nearly three entire decades. Um, he essentially ran Mo out of the company and replaced him with, you know, another executive, uh, you know, who was going to be more loyal to Morgado. But you know, the you know the the company just lost its rudder at that point, and and you know artists began to leave and executives began to leave, and you know, and then the company really sort of hit a death spiral after that, which they managed to pull out of to a great degree. Uh, there was a bit of a reformation, you know, later, you know, within a, a year or two. Um, but by then, Mo was gone, and he took Lenny Warrenker, who was his, you know, Mo was the chairman of the company, and, and Lenny was the president, and they worked hand-in-hand. Hand. They were very, very close, and they both shared that artist-friendly philosophy. Uh, and they went off and started the... Um, the uh, the record company for um, for uh, uh, you know uh, Steven Spielberg and David Geffen mm-hmm. over at DreamWorks and uh, you know and, and sort of got going over there. Um, but by then the industry had changed so much. With you know I mean Napster began and sales really sort of fell through the floor and you know and then eventually streaming became a thing. So you know it's hard to imagine any record company being able to make the you know the million, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars that that Warner uh, Warner Brothers managed to over the years. Sonic Boom ends uh, with a very poignant conversation uh, that you had with Mo Austin. And man, I, I I would love to have just been a fly on the wall for that. What was that experience like? You know, it was really cool. It took you know one of the things when I first started doing the book. Um, you know, I knew that Mo was very interview shy. He didn't like to talk about himself, and he had just rarely, if ever, you know, barely ever really been interviewed, and certainly not in a in any kind of real heavily personal way. And so, when I started working on the book, you know, I began to get in touch with these executives who had worked for him. You know, they would say like, "Oh, I'm so glad you're going to do this book," you know, because no one, you know, there there hadn't been a really really big book about the company except for one in-house one they did, which was really nice, had a lot of great photos and great stuff in it that came out for the 50th anniversary. But they said, like, you know, it's going to be really hard for you to do this book without Mo, and unfortunately Mo will never talk to you. <laughs> but as it turned out, you know, um, a few of them, I think, began to lean on him a little bit. 
saying, you know, it's time for us to kind of get our due, you know, to have our story told. And then his son, Michael Austin, who, you know, had been a, uh, an A&R guy at, at, at Warner's and then went with his dad over to DreamWorks and is, you know, quite a, you know, a, a brilliant executive on his own. I think he finally leaned on his dad enough that Mo agreed to do some interviews with me. And we eventually talked for, you know, we had three real full days of interviews that went to like 20 hours or something like that. Uh, and we talked in great depth about a lot of it. And Mo, you know, at the time, it was like 91, 92 years old. This was a couple of years ago. But he, um, you know, it's amazing how sharp that guy is. I mean, his, his level of detail that he can summon just talking about, you know, record contracts that he had signed 60 years ago. You know, he can, he can, he can break it down to individual clauses and also how those clauses evolved in subsequent renegotiations. <laughs> And I can't even tell you what I had for breakfast today. <laughs> He's an amazing man, you know, and, and also, you know, just just given the way that he did business, always in a very sort of collegial way, um, you know, he's just roundly beloved, you know, not just by the artists who recorded for him and the people who worked for him, but also by, you know, industry observers and, and his competitors. You know, I mean, there are I talked to Clive Davis, you know, who was obviously at Sony and Columbia and, you know, one of Mo's biggest competitors and, you know, and David Geffen as well. And uh, they just think the world of Mo, you know, even as hard as they competed against him. Um, there's so much sort of affection and admiration for this man. It's, it's, it's really something else. The book is called Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records. From Hendrix to Fleetwood Mac to Madonna to Prince. And uh, Peter, I always love your books. This was such a great ride because uh, what it did for me is it it reminded me of the joy in, in experiencing that music uh, when I was younger and, and the joy that, that the leaders of that company had in finding and nurturing these artists. It's a, a great look back at a wonderful time that we'll, we'll probably never see again in the music business. Yeah, you know, you never really know what's going to happen next. And guys like me and you, you know, you know, these veterans of pop culture, it's like, you know, we're probably not the ones who are going to figure it out first. You know, <laughs> it's our kids and grandkids who are going to like suddenly figure out, you know, the, the you know, the next great stuff and, you know, and all that. But, uh, you know, there was something what I love the most about the Warner Brothers story and everything is just the idealism that went into it, just the the admiration they had for the artists and the art and the fact that, you know, what they figured out is that if you don't, if you don't make money, your top priority, if you actually prioritize the art, you may well end up making way more money than you thought possible. And that's exactly what they did for, you know, nearly 30 years. Well, it's a great story and a wonderful ride uh, reading Sonic Boom. Peter Ames, Carlin, great to talk with you again, Peter. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Rich. Peter Ames, Carlin, talking about his terrific new book on the history of Warner Brothers Records called Sonic Boom. Take a little break. Hear from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we'll talk pole dancing with actress Sheila Kelly here on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. 
We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back in downtown, the podcast, the first big hits for Prince Rogers Nelson, who would go on to have many more. One of those artists groomed and uh, elevated to massive success by Warner Brothers Records. Again, chronicled in Peter Ames Carlin's new book, Sonic Boom. Up next on Downtown, the podcast, actress Sheila Kelly. Uh, You know her from her role in a number of television series like L.A. Law, a recent turn on The Good Doctor with her real-life husband, our friend Richard Schiff. And she's been in movies uh, like Singles and One Fine Day. But also for more than two decades now, uh, she's worked uh, helping women build up their self-esteem, their confidence, and recover from trauma through the art of pole dancing. And that story is all told in a powerful new film that uh, comes to Netflix in early February entitled Strip Down, Rise Up. We had a chance to talk about uh, the teaching, the philosophy, and the making of the film with Sheila Kelly. Hi, how are you? Wonderful, thank you. And uh, how are you, how are you feeling? Are you both you and your husband, uh, Richard Schiff, tested uh, positive and dealt with COVID nineteen? Or have you put that behind you largely? Um. Well, you know, every time it's so funny. This is a strange ailment. We both had it. He was in the hospital for six days. I uh, struggled at home for you know three weeks, and then every you know you just get little waves of it. Even and that was two months ago. So it's it's a pretty a uh, fierce little demon, but we're both, you know, 90, 95% better. So well, thank you for asking. So glad to hear that. that. Well, uh, this, uh, the trailer for this film was so powerful and, and so moving, mm-hmm. but I, I want to get the backstory on it. Uh, th- this began with a film you did uh, back about 20 years ago, Dancing at the Blue Iguana, where you mm-hmm. uh, you had to play a stripper. And I, I wonder, was, was the challenge as an actor the skills involved, the dance, the strip skills involved in that? Or was it to be able to to get inside the head and become that character? When you say what, well, you know, I was also a producer on that film. I wrote the first script. And it's important for me to tell you that because um, I had been fascinated with, um, with, with professional dancers a long time. I was fascinated by their beauty and their power. And the fact that we as a society have kind of had kind of like locked them away and that movement away and you know, strip clubs and gentlemen's clubs. And when I went in, you know, to look, I was rehearsing for another film and I went to a strip club and I fell in love with the movement. And I just was like, I need to learn how to do that because I had never moved my body like liquid like that. And um, I had been a dancer my whole life. I was a dance major at NYU and studied somatics and, and, uh, and body movement anatomy. And so uh, it was really, it was a really, it was a labor of love to get that film made. And once we got the cast and the fine director, uh, Michael Radford and Daryl Hannah, once we got the cast, and we actually got to go into the clubs to learn how to do the film and to how to do the dancing. Like, um, because I had a dancer my whole life and a movement person, when I was able to um, release areas in my body that um, had been locked or had been forbidden 
it was just incredible the kind of energy that came through my body and out of my body and the kind of um, character that I developed came from learning the movement. It was all tied together. Um, Stormy was the character I played and she was, uh, she was a little dark horse and, and uh, quiet and surly and uh, husband uh, inspired me a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> if you know anything about his uh, characters and his personality, he can be a little surly. <laughs> well, how? But, um, yeah, that, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was, so how did that experience then lead to uh, S Factor and what's become really a phenomenon? Well, thank you for asking. Um, when I d- danced and when I learned the movement, it was an it was an improvisational film. So the cast, we um, we got together, we rehearsed, we. Um, found our characters, and then we went into the clubs in the L.A. area to learn the movement and to find um, mentors and to um, find our characters. And so when I found a couple of char- a couple of wonderful women who were uh, professional dancers, became my mentors, they, were, um, they would teach me movement that I was so afraid to do and movement that I had never been allowed to do. Oh my God, that's too provocative or that's too sexual or that's too erotic. Had the excuse that I was doing a movie, you know, cause I was raised as a, <laughs> you know, good little Catholic girl. But when I did that movement and I freed myself from all the shame and I freed myself from all the ideas of it being bad, all of a sudden I felt like a new human being. I felt like a new woman. I discovered a side of myself, Rich, that I had no idea was there. She was like this sleeping giant. And that was my erotic body, my erotic creature. And that is Stormy. And that, and when I finished the film, I was pregnant, um, had my second baby. We don't have to get into why, but um, had my second kid nine months after the film wrapped. We figured it out. And um, <laughs> it was so... I got, you know, I was feeding, I was breastfeeding. I had gained 55 pounds and she weighed weighed six. I was feeling really out of sorts with my body. And I really missed how enlivened, how sexy, how empowered I had felt. So I put a poll in Richard's office in the house we were living in. And um, he was like, I'm trying to watch the Yankees. <laughs> and it was so cute. Cause I was like, um, like two weeks into me working out on the pole, he was not watching the Yankees anymore. <laughs> it was so cute. So I would just start to, to, I just started doing the movement and I started putting together a movement technique, um, a movement practice that was indigenous to the feminine body that allowed each woman's feminine body to move to the fullest degree she was capable of, no matter her size, her age, her anything is she no matter who it's it's just it's it's any woman on the planet anyone who identifies as being a woman can learn to free their body in the way that it was intended to move in a feminine way and and so it just took off women were coming to me asking for me to teach them i said get shields come to my my house knock on the front door three times and then go around back um code knock. It was, it was kind of like fight club for women women. It was a very cool thing. And then I got evicted from, I had the, the fire department came and they said, we're here, you're doing illegal strip tease classes. And I was like, no, but they sent, they said I couldn't teach at my house anymore. So I got a studio. I found that I trained teachers and um, it grew into this beautiful movement. Oprah had me on her show 
several times and uh, it just, it took off like wildfire. And, um, and so S factor has just been chugging along as this, this beautiful company and it's coming into a growth spurt right now with the film that we've been shooting for, we were shooting for three years and it's just such an incredibly gratifying moment to see all the hard work, the transformations that, that women can go through and reclaiming all of themselves is, it's just, uh, it's stunning. It's powerful. You're right. It's a powerful movie. We're talking with Sheila Kelly here on Downtown. This is about taking control. And one of the messages you've given to women through this program is that you don't own your own body. What does that mean? It means that when we come out of our mama's bellies, we're perfect. And our bodies um, are perfect the way they move. And if you ever watch a little girl move, a little girl is so free in her body and she shakes her toes and she runs around squealing and happy and delighted and, and she knows how her body is supposed to move. But because of um, our dysfunctional relationship with the feminine body and our dysfunctional relationship with sexuality, we have told all the girls and all the women, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not good. That's not good. And so... Um, girls get judged very harshly. Women get judged very harshly from the tips of their toes all the way up to the end of their hair. I mean, we are scrutinized by the media. We're scrutinized by our, by our colleagues, our friends. And so women's bodies just start to curl in on themselves and they start to censor themselves and they start to offend themselves um, in so many different ways. And there's so many layers of this. You know, given that we live in a very masculine culture, it's, it is a culture built around the masculine body. You know, work out this way. Move this way. Move linearly. Let's do running. Let's do Pilates. Let's do this up and down movement. And so when you really say, I'm going to dive into this world, I don't know, of circular, round, undulating, sensual movement, um, a lot of women are, like, they're terrified. And they come to class and it's like, I can't do this. I can't dance. And it's not about that. It's about feeling your body's pleasure and her natural curves, feeling your hips, feeling your waist, feeling your arms, feeling your chest, feeling, and allowing your body to really, really fully express herself in the most sensual and, yes, it can be erotic way. Uh, I'm a high school teacher, and so I, I see, you know, I see young women all the time. I work with, with freshmen and they're being judged constantly, but but also, and I, I know it happens with young women, I think it happens for all women, that, that there also is a level of women judging themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I was just, that's when I said we, when, when we're so judged outside by the world, we take that, we internalize that at some point. We are, um, we love to please. And so if we're displeasing the world, if we're displeasing that person and this person and that person, and we're constantly being um, judged and offended and shamed, we will start to internalize that and do the same thing to ourselves. I see it constantly. I see it with my daughter and her friends. And it's, it is, it's a radical revolution for the feminine to take their body back and to take it back through movement and to take it back through ownership, through sensuality take all of the genius of the feminine back so that we can fully express ourselves and truly uh, rise to an equal, equal stature as the masculine. Because right now, many of us 
mini-man up to make it in this masculine world. We mini-man up or we, and we, we, we shush and we hush the most feminine attributes we have when, in fact, I believe the feminine attributes are as important, as relevant, as valuable as the masculine attributes in life. Sheila, you've said that you, you thought you had things going pretty well, a good marriage, a successful career, but when you were able to go through this process and take ownership of your own body, it opened up a whole new world. It does, because because we are told at a very young age to not be in our bodies, when you finally walk into your body and you finally claim her as your own, and what's the first, I'm going to ask you, Rich, what's the first thing you think that society shuts down in a girl's body? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe strength? Do you think so? Because I know lots and lots of girls that do strength training. They do CrossFit. They do, they do weights. They do Pilates. They get strong. Sexuality. Our sexuality. Mm. Our eroticism. Our our sensuality gets shut down from the time we're tiny. And I saw it happen to my daughter. I saw it happen to me. I've seen it happen to girls all over the world. They're told, no, don't. Don't wear that. Don't move like that. Don't, 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 right? So we've done something bad. We shut our bodies down. Mm. So the first thing, because I'm asking you to move into your curves and your sexuality, we're opening up a part of you that you've never had access to. You're opening up a part of you that you've never had access to, and I call that part of you your erotic creature. And your erotic creature is going to fill in the richness and the quality and the beauty of your life on so many levels. You just get so present in your body. You get so present in what it is to, to feel pleasure in movement and, and just um, feel pleasure in simple things like biting into an apple or smelling the roses in the, in, in the garden outside, just simple little things that we move past. When you focus your body into reclaiming sensuality and your senses, everything in your whole life gets turned on. When your body turns on, your whole life turns on. How did Strip Down Rise Up come to pass? How did that whole process begin? Uh, about three Three years ago, I think it was 2017, actually, I got a phone call, and I um, the voice on the other end was a woman with, a, with an accent from I don't know where, but it was a beautiful melodic voice, and she was talking to me. Um, she had heard about me, and she said, it's taken me six months to get a hold of you, and uh, I, I need you to just listen to what my idea is. And she had taken a pole class, and she wanted to um, make a movie possibly about, you know, healing through movement and, and uh, empowering women through movement. And that is my jam. That is my passion. That is my, I've been doing it for 30 years. I've been teaching for 21 years. I love it so much. And I was, and I know what S factor has done for women. I know what S factor has done for me. I know what pole has done. So she and I talked and we decided to go ahead and do it. And she started, we started filming in I think January, 2018. Uh, Netflix, I think, had it picked it up, um, and we filmed for two years. And uh, we started our class in, I think, March of 2018. And she, we went through till December or January of 2019, and then she edited for the last two years. And 
and here we have it. We have a, a finished product, and I, I actually had the, the honor of seeing the whole thing, and oh, my God, get some tissues. It's profound. It is profound. It's beautiful. It's celebratory. It's, um, oh, my God, Rich, the stories are so powerful. They're so beautiful, and I'm so grateful to Michelle, the director. She's a genius. And the women who came um, came along to, to be the class, the documentary class, you couldn't have put together a more powerful group of women. Their stories are so beautiful. Their spirits are so strong. Um, their transformations are breathtaking. Yeah. And, and as women find themselves and this new gift, this new sensuality, this new power, what does that do for the other people in their life? Well, that's a great question. That's a great question. Well, what it did for my life is it made everything better, everything across the board. As I had it so hard to describe what really happens in your body when you actually live fully in your body, but you, you just, as your life, as your, as your body expands and your life expands, you know, as you move emotion through your body and you move sexuality through your body, and you send it out into the world, I mean, the feminine is the life force on the planet. She ripples out her life force energy, and everyone around her is either going to feel whatever she's feeling. They're either going to feel depleted and burnt out, where a lot of women get, or they're going to feel abundant and, 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 and full and delicious and beautiful. And that is what it did for my life. You know, I became a better mother. My relationship to my kids got better. My my love relationship with Richard just got off the chart phenomenal. Um, my career expanded. Everything, everything expanded and grew. And um, it's hard to explain that phenomenon, but that's the best I can say. How your physiology is is how your life is. Do you still have the pole in Richard's office? What? That's so funny. Um, <laughs> we moved. <laughs> <laughs> we moved out of that house, but we are in, up in Vancouver. He sh- we're both shooting The Good Doctor, and I'm also doing another TV show up here called Turner and Hooch for Disney+. Plus. Um, so I just ordered a poll, and uh, X-Poll, they just gifted me a poll, and it came in the mail yesterday, and I have to figure out how to put it out in COVID time. I- I'm going to need help. I'm going to need a handy person. <laughs> well, I, I cannot... So, yes. I can't wait to see the film. And uh, the trailer's out there now. Watch it, and, and if you can watch it and, and not be moved, just within mm-hmm. that, that two-plus minutes, uh, meeting these women and the stories they have, uh, it, mm-hmm. I can't wait to see the film itself strip down, rise up. Uh, Sheila Kelly, I have enjoyed your work for so long, and uh, this is uh, so impressive, the things you're doing to help women uh, through the S Factor and through this film. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for spreading the word. Sheila Kelly talking about uh, the new film Strip Down, Rise Up, that uh, debuts on Netflix on February 5th. Uh, the trailer, as I mentioned, and the conversation is great. I can't wait to see it. It really, hey, I don't want to use the term empowering. That seems a bit a bit played out. But it, it certainly opens up new opportunities and a new way of looking uh, at the world, but mostly at themselves for a lot of women. Mm. Yeah, and and some of what uh, she was talking about during that interview, very eye-opening that, you know, it, it's a way to possess their own bodies, you know, to, to use that as a way to deal with th- the things that they didn't have control over. Mm-hmm. 
it, it looks like, it sounds like a very, very interesting film. Yeah, uh, check it out when it comes to Netflix soon. Our thanks to Sheila Kelly and a thanks to Peter Ames Carlin. Always love talking music with him. His new book is Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records. And well, that'll do it for us on this week's Downtown The Podcast. Thank you for visiting with us. Again, we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.